Hello and welcome back to Lower Decks, a Star Trek podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I really barely remember how to do this. <laughs> you stole my intro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, behind the scenes, it has been three to four months since we've recorded anything together. We just spent 45 minutes solving a technical problem that has resulted uh, and has come about as a result of that. And actually, I think the last thing that you and I recorded together was not even a Star Trek episode. It was the Elder Sign episode that you guested on, which listeners should definitely go check out on Elder Sign, our weird fiction podcast. But it has been a long time since we have reviewed an episode together. Yeah, and we do, you know, behind the scenes, we do a lot of prep, so we sometimes have recorded long before an episode comes out, so I didn't even realize it had been that long until I started putting my equipment together and was like, I don't know anything. (laughs) Um, And I'm Valerie Hoagland, and like Glenn, I feel new in the world, but we're (laughs) going to give it a shot with Deep Space Nine today, which is totally a lighthearted show uh, (laughs) we should be recording about when we feel rusty. We're talking about the season two episode of Deep Space Nine, Profit and Loss, which Glenn has had to tell me approximately one million times is not Profit and Lace. (laughs) Because I just kept having stress dreams where I would wake up and email Glenn, wait, is it Profit and Lace? (laughs) Um, So I had to be reassured, so I'm reassuring you. This was chosen by our Patreon supporters, so thank you very, very much. Yeah, thank you so much for your support, of course, as always. And thank you for voting in the polls that decides what we cover here on Lower Decks. And that does the hard work for us, though it's pretty clear that we may never do an episode of Enterprise again now that we are on this model of uh, of uh, picking episodes to cover. And this is the last episode from this vote. So at the uh, end of the show, we'll we'll look ahead to the, the future. Uh, as Valerie said, this is a season two episode, not the season six episode, Profit and Lace. Uh, Profit and Loss aired in March of 1994. Again, I did check pre-recording that maybe listeners were confused and you all thought you were voting for Profit and Lace. So if that was the case, we're not sorry. (laughs) No, no, but I could see people hate voting for that episode. Like, wouldn't it be hilarious to make them watch Profit and Lace? Uh, Yeah, so we may be in for that someday. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and this episode was written by Flip Kobler and Cindy Marcus and directed by Robert Weimer. I'm really excited about this episode. This was randomly generated. That's how it got on the on the ballot. Then, of course, Patreon supporters have voted for it. But this is one of the, the hard-boiled, one of the film noir episodes of Deep Space Nine, something we get quite a bit of in the first three seasons and then less of after that. I love that genre of storytelling. I especially do love film noir. And this episode in particular was inspired very much by Casablanca, which is, you know, I think that's one of everyone favorite movies, or at least regarded as one of the best movies by everyone, even if it's not necessarily a favorite. And one of the things we can talk about as we go is where the episode is drawing on Casablanca and maybe where it has diverted from. Uh, one of the, the sort of bits of trivia about this episode is that actually the they became concerned about getting sued, which is a thing that Star Trek is very concerned about <laughs> all the time. And I think right before filming, right before production actually changed quite a bit of the script. But the original script was basically almost a scene for seen retelling of Casablanca. That is fascinating. Um, yeah, I feel like you say they're concerned with getting sued. I feel like they're not based yeah. on some <laughs> of the things that they've done, especially over on The Next Generation. Well, I think that's why the Deep Space Nine people were so concerned about getting sued is because it happened all the time to TNG. who were just like, oh, I guess we thought Sherlock Holmes was out of copyright, so we didn't bother to check. One other lovely detail uh, about the Casablanca backstory is is the title of your bar, Glenn. Yes, absolutely. Glenn's Cafe American will be talking about that as we get to the uh, end of the episode as well, was was so named uh, for Rick's Cafe American in Casablanca. So this is something that's been uh, a big part of my life for a, a long time. Yeah, I I got to tell you, this is, you know, a qu- <laughs> it's a quark heavy episode, um, which surprise, surprise, makes it not my favorite. Uh, I do. I do. I do sometimes think Quark is an interesting character. I I typically don't enjoy a Ferengi-centric episode. Um, uh, And I'm curious how much you like him as he acts throughout throughout this little mini story we have here. Because I I can't say I left with a 
with a good taste in my mouth. Yeah, we're going to have to keep our eye on that as we we go through the the scene by scene. The the points at which Quark is as the protagonist of this story is supposed to be a sympathetic character, but then also the ways in which Quark in terms of the whole arc of Deep Space Nine is not supposed to be a sympathetic character and the ways that the writers try to balance that. I'm not sure that trying to balance that was actually the right storytelling move here. I think you should have just leaned into one or the other. Uh, There are some other reasons why this episode is, you know, not the best episode, even though it is one that I love. Uh, You know, it's, it's right in my wheelhouse. It's kind of made you know, for me, really, I think of the target audience for this episode, but I can admit objectively that it does not succeed uh, on all on all fronts. That's and I do kind of disagree with you, actually, on that point. I, I think that the the trying to figure out um, where the nuance is, if it is at all in in Quark's morality, which I think is what you were talking about, pick one or the other, good guy, bad guy you know, guy we sympathize with, guy we don't. I think that that nuance was interesting. I still think it was not enough to redeem him, maybe is what I was trying to say. And we can get more into that, obviously, as as we go go through the story. I will say, though, uh, I'm not a total negative Nancy about this episode because Garrick is in it. And I think that Deep Space Nine handles the Garrick plot lines really beautifully. This character is kind of just impeccable. Um, So when I edit Quark out of everything... This episode was great. <laughs> yeah, I sometimes think that Garrick is actually the character that Quark was meant to be. <laughs> we can talk about that as we get into it, too. So let's do get into it. We start in Ops, where our heroes are watching a damaged Cardassian ship approach. The ship will not respond to communications. And so the question is, who are they and what do they want? We zoom over to the docks and discover that it is Natima Lang, a professor of political science and two of her grad students from Cardassia. They've had some trouble with a meteor shower and they're sorry to have to stop here to get repairs because they know that having Cardassians on a Bajoran station is going to be indelicate is the word, I guess. But Cisco insists that if they stick to the promenade, everything is going to be great. So... Off to the promenade we go. Uh, Garrick and Bashir are having lunch and are discussing a Cardassian novel about the tension between loyalty to one's family and loyalty to the state. Except, you know, there is no tension. Loyalty to the state is always the answer, at least for Garrick. And this is great because this conversation here about this novel, about the plot of this novel, this just reminds us who Garrick is and what his motivations are, which is going to be important later. And he is still just a recurring character at this point. So the audience, a casual audience certainly is going to need that. And from here then, we shift perspective to Quark's, where Odo is relating a rumor that Quark has gotten his hands on a cloaking device, which would totally be illegal. Uh, This is going to come back as well, but it doesn't matter right now because finally our guest star has arrived, Natima Lang. She's here. She backhands Quark. And I, I mean, you know, she doesn't slap him. She literally backhands him like she's actually trying to knock out some of his Ferengi teeth. This was a shocking bit here in the teaser for me. Oh, man, there's so much that I want to say, even in just like that recap. I kept being like, Glenn, no, stop. We have to talk about that deeply. Um, so so let's see if I can run down a few things that I, that I noticed that I thought were important or interesting um, in even just the beginning intro to this show. So one thing is I was just so reminded that Kira's character is amazing. Or maybe I'll zoom out more than that. I was so reminded of of the politics of what Deep Space Nine is, right? That this is a Bajoran Federation kind of endeavor that is just after the occupation. The Cardassians have just left, and there's so much trauma from the occupation and from the war left over. And even in the way Kira is her, she doesn't even know she has a line, but if you look at her face and her posture as she watches this Cardassian ship uh, appear in front of the station, she's just she's pissed. She does not want them there before we even have any idea what's happening. Yeah, we've just been watching season six of Deep Space Nine. You and I have for one of our Patreon episodes, and so. 
it's hard to come back to early Deep Space Nine. I mean, I don't mean it's hard to come back to early Deep Space Nine, but so much happens by the time we are, you know, at the end of season six that the tension between Bajorans and Cardassians is just one strand of many and not even maybe the most colorful strand in the tapestry that our writers are, are weaving here. And to come back to the beginning and to remember that, yeah, that's what this show is all about, that this show is looking at the aftermath of something very much like the Second World War, at least something very much like the Holocaust and Vichy France, that we've got occupations and death camps, and now we're dealing with the tables having been turned and the relationships between Bajorans and Cardassians, and that that is the personal story in particular of Kira and also Odo, uh, among others, <laughs> certainly a lot, all the recurring characters, also Quark as well, as we're going to, to find out. Uh, I love early Deep Space Nine for these stories. The way that that energy uh, of the entire situation flows out of Nana Visitor and out of the scenes on the show um, through through the laptop screen uh, and into my body and brain is just really amazing. Um, and, and in that intro scene, like you just see all of that emotion in Kira and you see that Dax basically has none of it because da- this isn't Dax's, you know, personal experience. Um, and so she's not affected by it in the same in the same way. I also think it's worth in the same vein, pausing for a moment on Natima Natima's comment when she steps off the ship originally and onto the station that she knows that the presence of Cardassians on the station might be, as you called it, Glenn, indelicate. Because when she first delivers that line, we don't know if that means she is sympathetic to the fact that she was going to be a disruptive and traumatic presence to the Bajorans on the station, or if that means that she hates Bajorans and, you know, this is coming from some sort of of prejudice that she is saying this in the other direction. And I found that tension really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Is If these words had come out of the mouth of Gold Dukat, we would know that he's snidely being polite, right? That he's snidely being uh, a, a racist while he says these things and trying to express some kind of uh, moral superiority to people who actually defeated them in a war. Yeah, and we don't know this character yet. And in fact, we're set up... I think as the Deep Space Nine audience to 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 have a little bit more of the Bajoran perspective, right? To think, oh, we see a Cardassian, this must be bad, um, and and so not knowing that and having that that question um, kind of looming in the beginning of the episode, it was was a really great setup for me. Well, and then the next thing that we really see this character do is an act of pretty intense violence. Well, yeah, although, I mean, I don't know, somebody slapping Quark doesn't really make me think, like, <laughs> that they might be evil <laughs> at all. That just, like, I that didn't affect me. But I, I do think because we have this early scene here with Garrick as well, they're playing off of this tension of... Can we can we trust Cardassians? What are their motives? Um, what does the spectrum of being Cardassian look like? And how do we grapple with that? Are all Cardassians evil? And and then you have Garrick here, who's just a beautiful mystery. I mean, I love any Garrick Bashir scene, um, as does anyone who understands that really they ought to have, you know, dated, <laughs> um, that they are just in this like beautiful, romantic, weird kind of toxic relationship, friendship thing. I think that just about sums it up. <laughs> <Enough>. <laughs> um, but I... We can also kind of grab onto, I think in the beginning of the episode here, Garrick's comment that one should always have loyalty to the state. And of course, we'll talk about that when we get to the end. But with with Garrick, the question that other people are always bringing to him and that we bring to him as well is like how much of what he's saying is true and how much of what he's saying is a lie. And I think this intro scene and what plays out through the rest of the episode also encourages us to question how much is Garrick lying to himself as as well? Um, like how does that nuance play out internally within him, let alone how we perceive him and what his role is? 
Yeah, this is a huge part of who Garrick is. And this question of loyalty to the state versus loyalty to your family, that dynamic is not really going to come into play in the episode. But loyalty to yourself versus loyalty to the state is going to come into play. But I think ultimately with Garrick's storyline, and, you know, this episode is going to end with Garrick. And this the storyline for Garrick here in this episode is really asking us, the audience, to think about what does it mean to be loyal to your state? What does it mean to be a patriot, right? What what does that actually look like? And and that's going to be a great conversation to have when we get to the end. Yeah, I actually disagree. I think the loyalty to the family question does come up at the end. So so we'll pick that back up when, when we get to that scene um, and stop doing the thing we always do where we talk too much about the <laughs> bottom at the top. But, yeah. um, uh, but I also just, you know, you, you miss the part where Quark kind of freaks out and runs out of the bar, right? Like there's something about Natima that is familiar to Quark and that he's very excited to see her for. And again, knowing him, I'm not assuming that the motivation here is love. I'm assuming that there's some other profit-based motivation um, for him being so excited to see her. So I think they're playing with a lot of of the characters and what we assume about them at this point in season two throughout this episode. Well, this is how this recap is going to, is going to go Valerie, that I'm going to need you to uh, narrate all of the bits where uh, Quark is being played for laughs, because that is the thing that I don't, like that and that really more than the moral nuance in quark that's what i was talking about at the top of the show is the this the way that the the writers try to balance quark as a serious hard-boiled or serious film noir character with the fact that the ferengi also are the 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 characters who are played for laughs here and this this chasing after natima bit uh leaned a little too much into slapstick comedy for me oh really i thought I mean, that's just Quark's persona, which is probably why I don't like him. Uh, well, <laughs> there are many reasons I don't like him. Um, <laughs> but that's definitely one of them. Um, because I think the Ferengi are played for laughs, but like, we really need to be interrogating what's going on with Ferengi. <laughs> um, like, there's so much serious stuff to dig dig your claws into with them um, that the laughter stuff sometimes, I think, to me, excuses the toxicity of their behavior or like the the problems with unfettered capitalism and really grossly systemic misogyny. Yes, a thing that we have talked about before and will talk about again. Well, let's let's move on with our our story here. So we come back from the commercials and we're back in Quarks and now we're going to get some backstory here about, you know, why he's getting slapped by this Cardassian professor of political science. So Seven years ago, during the occupation, Natima Lang worked as a correspondent for the Cardassian Information Service, and she was stationed here on Deep Space Nine, or Tarek Noor, as it was called then. And during that time, she and Quark had a romance, and Quark is still into it, but Natima just wants to backhand him, or, or at least, you know, get him to leave her alone because she's mad about, well, about something. We'll find out what that is later. Garrick and Natima notice each other here in this scene, and this is heavy with significance that will uh, come back in just the very next scene. But much more important than any of this, Valerie, is that we get a cocktail. We see Quark make a Sumerian sunset, which was Natima's favorite drink seven years ago, but she doesn't drink them anymore because they remind her of Quark. And there's not very much actually that goes into this drink, I have to say. He just kind of pours it straight into the glass, so I'm skeptical about this cocktail. Is the did I pick up a moment where he then adds some ingredient and it changes color? You have to tap the glass, you kind of flick it with your finger, and that's when it changes color. We've seen Guinan do this, you know, in 10 Forward as well. Oh, man, I just, that's, that's, you know, when people ask you, like, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? Uh, yeah, it would be that. I could just, like, cool and casual, flip a glass, click it with my finger, and then it changes color, and people think I'm impressive. Wow, the whole way <laughs> I narrated that is clear that I am not cool. Like, I could just do the cool <laughs> thing. Um, so, so yeah, I think I would want, I would want that superpower. Well, someday we really will have a cocktail bar of our own in space somewhere. Someday. Someday. Uh, yeah. Then we we'll be dream. cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do think that... This is the beginning of one of my biggest problems with Quark in this episode, which is that he is uh, horrifically not respectful of this woman's boundaries. He doesn't listen to a thing she says. 
he basically like harasses her over and over and over throughout the episode. And I think it's meant to be funny or by the end, I actually think it's meant to be like, oh, it was okay that he harassed her that whole time because he was in love and it's okay to harass people if you're in love. It's okay not to respect their boundaries if you're in love. Um, and, and it just, it's very upsetting. This is a thing that is really tough about 1990s television. This sense that you, the sense that badgering, uh, it's almost always a man badgering a woman, but the sense that badgering a woman into going on a date with you or falling in love with you or or seeking political asylum with you, whatever it might be, that, that to harass, to badger is okay. And not just okay, it's it's cute. It's it's romantic comedy cute, right? This is a kind of meat cute type of thing, uh, that this is charming somehow. And wow, is it not charming? It is not cute at all. But you go back and watch The West Wing or, or you know, anything Aaron Sorkin has ever written, and this is every character. This is every romance is exactly this. This is even in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which Elizabeth and I just finished watching. The, the sort of first two seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer in particular are really bad about this. It's not just Xander, though it is a lot Xander, but guest <laughs> stars. And this is just a thing in the 90s that I feel like we need to make a PSA about. Yeah. And I think it's particularly, it's it, it's bad and it's insidious and it's indicative of, of like culture at large and elements of our culture that still do exist, though we can call them out. And I think we see it less often now, or, or maybe it's taken a more subtle shape. But I think the particularly insidious aspect of this is that if you do end up with that woman, if that woman does end up reciprocating your affection, um, then it was okay to do that. Like, like that's some sort of a justification. I think that, like, in general, we're being told it's okay to harass women, period. But especially if you were right the whole time that she did like you back. Um, so, you know, this episode is not holding space for the fact that you can love someone and uh, they should still respect your boundaries. <laughs> Yeah, that that actually might be a demonstration of love in ways yeah. that harassing and badgering and begging are are just not. Part of the insidiousness of this is that the dialogue itself, the banter, is often quite snappy and quite entertaining. Uh, I, especially, you know, Aaron Sorkin is really a master of this. Of course, we all grew up with Han Solo and Princess Leia having a dynamic like this and loving that that type of banter. Uh, in the West Wing, it is great when Rob Lowe is the person saying lines like this. It seems so clever and witty and we're rooting for him and we're kind of rooting for them, right, to get together. But, you know, but we do have to take a step back, I think, and say we can set aside the enjoyment of the language of it and the performances of the actors and so on and recognize that this is not the way that people ought to be behaving in the in the world. I think it's important to, I do, and I do think it's important to call attention to that with, with you know, our blinders of the 90s now fully off. It's also very interesting to see a Ferengi and Cardassian relationship play out. Like if we zoom out from, I think like this was just our disclaimer. Like I feel this way about this relationship. I feel this way about this whole episode. It's horrible, but I can't just keep repeating that over and over um, <laughs> as we continue talking. So just know that that's how I feel in the background and I'll, I'll probably reference it a couple times. But if we, if we put that aside for a second, which is difficult to do, thinking of two species that exist in the Trek universe that aren't like, you know, universally loved it's interesting to see them be in a relationship the dynamic of of a Ferengi and a Cardassian in a relationship though they've turned it a little bit on its head by presenting us with a Cardassian that's like one of the good ones well, this is certainly something that Deep Space Nine does really well, right, is to show these interspecies relationships, which, of course, all stand in as kind of a metaphor for interracial relationships. Uh, Deep Space Nine has more of these than any other of them. But yeah, I think you're, you're, you're right about this, the idea of having the, the two species that we're not really supposed to like very much uh, getting together like this is actually really uh, quite interesting because we are going to see Cardassians. I don't know. We're going to see Cardassians in love. We're going to see Cardassian romance elsewhere in the series. It's usually Goldicott being extremely creepy, but we'll see some other romances as well involving Garrick and so on. Oh, Glenn, thanks for the reminder about Goldicott uh, and romance. Uh, okay, well, what happens next? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get away <laughs> from the, the creepiness here uh, and go to Ops and Cisco's office because meanwhile, we have to find out why Natima and her students are here. And it turns out that their ship was not damaged by any meteor shower. It was weapons fire. It was Cardassian weapons fire. 
It turns out that Natima's grad students are political dissidents who want to end military rule on Cardassia, and therefore the Cardassian government wants them. So they're on the run. And Natima is really worried about Garrick, about the fact that Garrick has seen them. She's worried about who he might be and really who he might inform about her, I suppose. And so she is going to need that ship repaired right away. And all of this is great, right? We have characters in trouble with the law, but their illicit behavior is something that we, the audience, are sympathetic to. There's an old romance with a signature cocktail, uh, sadly no signature piano tune that we would actually get in Casablanca, right? Uh, And we've also got, actually, the conflicted policeman character from Casablanca here in the the form of, of Garrick, actually. Odo a little bit, but Garrick is really stepping into that role here. Yeah, one of the really cool things about this episode was the way, and Deep Space Nine does this all the time, but the way that we get these little bits of information, like part of the mystery that comes up throughout the entire show, not even just these one-off kind of hard-boiled episodes, is is the stuff like, who who is Garrick? What really happened to him? But also, who is everybody that was around during the occupation? And what were they really like, you know? What did they really do? Is is Quark a good Ferengi because he did sell food to the Bajorans? Or is he bad because he was also selling things to Cardassians? How complicit is Odo in, um, in the occupation? You know, like these little drops of references to what life was like when this was Tarek Noor, I just find so enticing. Like I want to watch that prequel very badly. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I would watch that show for sure. I mean, that's the Star Trek show that I I want CBS to be developing. Absolutely. I love hard-boiled stories. And so many hard-boiled stories or these film noir type stories are set during occupations like what the Cardassian occupation of Bajor was. Uh, some of, you know, Casablanca obviously is set during the uh, occupation of Morocco. That's actually all very complicated. But during the Second World War, when there are like four or five different layers of government and, and tensions when the war is raging. Uh, the Third Man is another one of my my favorite film noirs. Also, I just love the, the, the uh, I also love the treatment, the novelization treatment by Graham Greene, who's one of my absolute favorite writers, which is very much about Vienna, occupied Vienna and the the conflicts, the the tensions going on there while things are kind of in limbo for people, but people still have needs. And and also, of course, the idea of, yeah, but what were you up to? Which side were you on during the war or during the occupation? Those are stories I always love. And I would count among my favorite Deep Space Nine episodes every single flashback episode that we get to the occupation to Tarek Noor. So yeah, I would totally watch that. We need to start some kind of petition or something. Yeah, but we get so much of that through the retelling of what 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 happened seven years ago like with this romance as kind of the anchor right every drop of that i just soak right up like a sponge yeah it's all awesome and speaking of soaking up like a sponge we're gonna go now to garrick's shop his tailoring shop where uh quark is interested in buying a dress for natima but really he's here to talk with garrick and garrick gives quark a warning about natima really it's a warning for Natima, that she should not be hanging around those dissidents if she doesn't want to get herself killed. And this is probably my favorite scene of the whole episode. Andrew Robinson and Armin Shimmerman do not get a lot of dialogue together in this show, like outside of this scene, I don't think. And that is a real shame because these actors are just chewing up the scenery, like, you know, from either ends and they're sort of coming together. It's like the lady and the tramp. I love this scene. It was phenomenal. And this also the writing is remarkable. And I said this at the at the beginning of, of the show. I think the writing for Garrick in particular, because just everything he says, you have to try to interpret meaning from and you're left guessing a little bit. And it's like just clear enough to sometimes make you think you've understood it, but always leave you wondering, which is the entire point. And I'm fascinated by the idea of a personality that exists like that all the time in the world that would just take so much effort for me to do to to speak that way um, and to always be lying um, or alluding to things rather than just saying them um, and so maybe it's just my own inability to access that personality <laughs> type that makes it extra fascinating but I did think the writing here was was beautiful and it leaves room I, I think as you kind of got out got at Glenn for us to question is Garrick trying to protect her or 
does he hate her and is trying to warn Quark? And I actually think it's both. Yeah, I often wonder, and this scene is a particular scene where I do wonder this, but often with Garrick, I wonder if Garrick knows what he actually feels or intends in any given moment. Garrick is the ultimate survivor, right? So he has this real flexibility, I think, internal to him about loyalties, about wants about commitments and so on where he can he doesn't break he bends right he can bend with the wind and adjust and uh, and survive and it does seem to me like Garrick is playing it both ways here right he's he's having this conversation the dialogue he's using here the vocabulary maybe i should say is i think designed so that you could interpret that he is trying to help or that he's trying to th- threaten so that depending on how things work out he can go to whoever wins in this situation and say yeah i was helping i was helping that's exactly right the second you said it it was exactly right that really sums up his character everything is designed so that he'll be okay no matter which outcome occurs and we are going to see that happen in this episode. And and when we get to the end, one of the things I, I want to talk about, which, of course, now that I'm saying it here means we'll forget to talk about it when we get there, <laughs> but is is the, the way in which Garrick fashions his own narrative after the fact and the way that he justifies his behavior and his choices. So I think that's a big part of the third act and especially the, the final scene here of this episode. But we have a number of scenes we need to get to before then. So uh, now we're going to go to Natima's quarters where we're going to get even more backstory, a lot of backstory, in fact. So here in Natima's quarters, she and Quark engage in some really great hard-boiled banter about their former romance. And here's what we learned. So during the occupation, Quark was illegally selling food to the Bajorans, and Natima helped him out when the police were after him. And at that point, they fell in love. But then Quark used her computer access codes to steal some money from the Cardassian communications service, and Natima found out about this and broke off the relationship and then went back to Cardassia. So now their roles are reversed, right? She's the one in trouble. Quark is the one who's here, and he wants to help. But he also very, 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 very much wants her to stay on Deep Space Nine with him. And if not, he'll go with her, whatever. But the point is, he's still in love a lot, right? We've talked about the extent to which he is still in love already, but she doesn't want that because now she's got a new lover, which is to say democracy, uh, or at least (laughs) civilian government is her new romance here. Uh, You know, it's hard to say if it's democracy, right? She might actually be an oligarch or even a plutocrat, but the point is military juntas are bad and she's got to do something about it. So I do want to say that I love this scene. I'm not sure that I love the execution of this scene, but I love the scene itself. And and maybe we can break that down. And, And The first thing that I think we have to say is that Mary Crosby, who plays Natima, I'm just not sure that she's up for this role. I'm not sure she's up for this dialogue. She can't really keep up with Armin Shimmerman, and it doesn't really feel to me like they are in the same scene. Yeah, I think she reads a little maybe stiff or flat in a way that that doesn't bring it to life, um, especially after just having that Garrick and Quark scene. At the same time... I guess you could see that as part of what this character, you know, what this character would actually be like in this scene a very guarded, uh, very unemotional, very unwilling to budge, doesn't want to have a lot of dialogue, wants to say as little as possible and go away. (laughs) So maybe she played it great. Yeah, I, I can see that reading. That is a charitable reading. I am I am skeptical of of that as uh, I am skeptical that that was a conscious acting or or directing choice because the lines themselves I think are meant to be emotional, right? They are talking about this sort of open wound they both have, and also her new commitment to to really being a kind of revolutionary. And she doesn't seem to have any passion for anything that she's saying she has passion for. And passion is definitely something that we see Cardassians have, right? I mean, the scene, you're, you're right to say that putting this right after the scene with Quark and Garrick is not doing uh, not doing this scene any justice, because Garrick is just oozing with emotion. Golducott is always oozing with uh, emotion. They're not emotions we like, but he's oozing, you know. Well, maybe that's the point. <laughs> maybe this we're just looking at a much more measured human. But I think maybe what you're getting at is you would have liked more out of what otherwise is a really awesome character, right? Like uh, 
a female professor dedicated to her work, willing to sacrifice her life for, you know, the good of a planet. It's, it's pretty cool, right? Like, and so maybe the fact that she is showing up on screen a little bit flat and stiff, plus the fact that she somehow fell in love with Cork, which I don't really understand, just ruins my ability to be sympathetic towards her <laughs> when otherwise she's a really, really amazing character. No, I think that's a great insight. You you have you have seen into my soul here and uh, and figured out what I really didn't like about this scene and and maybe her character in general is that I, I would watch that show. I would watch a show about her. And so I feel disappointed in the way that this is all executed here and in the way that this is very much a Quark episode and not a Quark and Natima episode. I, I would have liked it to have been more Natima. I do also want to say while we're talking about Mary Crosby that, by the way, she is Denise Crosby's aunt. Oh, well, what do you know? <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunate they never got any scenes together in Star Trek. Uh, it's, uh, I don't know. I would have liked would have liked to see that. I mean, Tasha Yar always finds a way to come back somehow, at least tangentially. So That's true. this makes sense to me. Though I think you know, as you were speaking just there, I, I wonder if too we are confusing a little bit the actress's performance with the way the writers wrote her, um, and with those. The, the choices that are, I think, akin to the problematic choices that we were talking about that are often made in the 90s um, uh, in entertainment um, and also in real life, but that maybe this character just was not given the the script and the direction and the thought that she deserved, that she would have been a really amazing, passionate main character in this episode, but that being a, a female character she just became a service to the plot rather than as amazing as she could have been. And that that was a a writing choice, an acting choice, a directing choice, an everything choice, not just the actress. I think that's an extremely fair critique. And and really the other big thing that I want to say about this particular scene, but what we learn in this scene is that I'm really not sold on Quark's blunder here. This uh, using her access codes to direct money to his account. It's not very interesting. I suppose it might be a very Ferengi thing to do, but I really would have liked Quark to have done something that was itself a kind of choice, a, a difficult choice, so that this wouldn't just feel like another Ferengi joke. But I think also that you've maybe pointed out that there's just a bit of laziness here, right? That we're not really all that interested. The writers aren't really all that interested in the backstories here, that the backstories are, how do we get to the banter? And so some of that is kind of phoned in. Though one thing that I found kind of thought provoking about that being the thing that ruined their relationship is that, and and that wasn't explored, is that to Natima, this was a huge betrayal of trust. And that's that's what she says, really, more than anything. She's like, you know, like, the prophet doesn't really bug me. It's that you went behind my back. Um, this was a betrayal. But to Quark, it's nothing because it's so innate. I saw an opportunity for profit and I took it. And, you know, I think that's almost verbatim what he says of, like, what is the big deal? This is literally the code with which I live my entire life. Um, how could this have been the thing that hurt you? And I think that that would be a cool thing to explore further. I agree. I would be interested in exploring that, but not, I don't think, in this context and certainly not in this genre, not in the the, the way that this is being staged for us. I would love to, I mean, we do get episodes about the Ferengi exploring th- this type of behavior, their attitudes and so on. And I do think that by the time we leave Deep Space Nine at the end of season seven, qu- the quirk that we get then would not have made this decision that he made seven years previously. So, you know, there's a 14 year arc for quirk that we uh, we're getting some insight into here at least. My God, that just made me think of like being trapped in some sort of universe where I had to spend 14 years only watching Quark episodes. <laughs> I don't know how we can turn that into a podcast episode, but uh, but I'm on it. We'll figure that out. <laughs> so what please, we do please don't. Please don't. <laughs> well, we are at the point now where stakes need to be raised. So a Cardassian warship arrives, which means that uh, Natima and the students can no longer simply leave Deep Space Nine when their ship is fixed. And so Garrick now works as a back-channel ambassador to explain that all Cisco has to do is hand over the students. And this is back-channel, by the way, because, of course, right, the Federation doesn't hand over refugees and has the option to grant these people political asylum. Uh, and this is going to come back later. 
later. So we can probably table it for now and, and actually get back to Natima and the students as they, they try to deal with this development. And so now that we've got these stakes raised, Quark wants to help, but he does want to help in a way that serves his own interests, uh, meaning that he wants to help the students escape and then have Natima stay here with him. So he offers the students the cloaking device that he very definitely has if they'll talk Natima into staying. None of this, of course, comes off well for Quark. We've talked about this already, but this this was maybe the bottom of this part of the episode where he's really gambling with other people's lives so that he can get a love interest to go on a date with him, basically. What we really just need to say is like, this is horrifically manipulative um, and so devoid of compassion um, or morality, right? Like it's just pure ego. I want this thing. Here I solved the problem. I can have it now. And I'm not going to think about anything else. And it really does make it hard for me to sympathize with Quark, to see him as a sympathetic character. We've done some work to do that already, right? We've we've been shown that during the occupation, he risked imprisonment or other types of punishment, probably execution, frankly, to help orphans. Now, this is not something, of course, he did totally out of the goodness of his heart because he made a profit doing it, right? Quark is a, a businessman. He's always working that angle. But there is something to be said for the fact that there was great risk in that decision, right? That he chose to that he chose to take that risk, and that people benefited uh, from that. Innocent people who needed protection, who needed help, benefited from that. Here, this is just totally dirty. It's kind of the exact opposite of that, and I think it undermines the work that's been done in the, the previous scenes with Quark. Yeah, or it just points to the fact that like he's willing to take risks when he might have something to gain. Not and not like, oh, it, he was willing to take this risk because he cared about Bajorans um, and whether or not they ate. Because honestly, if that were true, he would just give them food. <laughs> he wouldn't sell it to them. Um, you know, if you think about like selling food to refugees, it's just like <laughs> it, it, it's no, that's not what you would do if you cared. Right. Unless there were other other constraints. But um, I, I think it really for me just highlights or serves to remind us that he sometimes we can maybe think he's acting well, but mostly he's just willing to take more risks if he has the possibility to maybe gain anything at all. Well, that certainly is what we see here. It's just not a choice that I liked, though I think that you're probably right that this is more consistent with Quark's character in general, certainly as we see him here in these these early years of the show. I think that maybe, you know, if we want to try, if I want to try to be a little bit more generous, it's possible that we could view this more as, and if we think about Quark as a character more broadly, more as he does have this like sense of morality and goodness and impulse to do good, but like that his culture fails him. And so the only way he knows how to like access that part of him is by doing it through the facade of profit margin. Um, and so in a sense that maybe he's always playing an externalized self to other people that is like permissible within the rules of like Ferengi manhood. Um <laughs> If I wanted to be, if I wanted to be more generous, I think that's a possibility. And maybe that's just me trying to grapple with some of the nuance of his character over the over the whole series. But wanted to throw it out there. Oh, I really want to take a class on Ferengi masculinity. I, if only that were a thing that my university offered. I suppose I'm the person who's supposed to be offering yeah, that course. Glenn, so maybe this I'll, falls upon you. <laughs> I'll see what I I'll see what I could do. Well, uh, let's go to Natima's quarters now to deliver the cloaking device. And and here she tells Quark. I mean, and of course this is what's going to happen. Uh, She tells Quark that she's going to take the device, but she is not going to stay with him. She doesn't love him. And also she has a gun and she'll shoot him if he doesn't let her have it. Uh, Quark tries to take the gun. She accidentally shoots him. We cut to commercial. But when we come back, Quark is fine and Natima is sorry and she does love him and they make out. Uh, They also reminisce about their favorite date, but she still can't stay with Quark because she has responsibilities now. But in the end, she relents. But in the end, it doesn't actually matter because Odo is here to arrest her. I will say again, I think this scene really does need Mary Crosby to be better than she is. And Quark just seems like a lech rather than like a man in love. But I also will say that I definitely have the sense that Natima is playing Quark here, that she still has no intention of staying with him, even though she says so. But 
it was hard for me to tell because I just don't think Mary Crosby's doing a very good job. So I, I wonder how you read this scene. I just think they're not paying much attention to her character um, in general. And I think that maybe is the root, the root of the problem um, that is coming out um, to her eyes and ears through, um, through her. But I just was mad, honestly, like this scene was just hard. I, I couldn't find myself. I couldn't find the motivation within myself to, uh, to think about what was true and who was, who was tricking whom um, because I was just annoyed, you know, like that, it all ended up okay. All of his harassment um, was okay because she does love him back. He was totally right the whole time. But also this very like delicate like, oh, I've never used a phaser before. The trigger just like, oh, I just I only pressed it ever so lightly. Like um, wasn't giving this really amazing, again, character and Tima enough credit for her uh her awesomeness right like for the fact that this is a woman doing incredible things who is the opposite of cork because she is so steadfast to her principles to the point of sacrificing uh her life her ability to to love um but also like literally her her life as well um she lives with the constant threat of death and yet her morality her principles are so strong um that she has to stay on this path so that is a thing that they could have played more of in the episode of the tension between the fact that Quark doesn't seem to have any moral scruples and she had, that's all she has. Um, and again, it just like didn't show up cool on screen. Yeah. That's a cool soundbite right there. Didn't show up cool on screen. <laughs> that's the blurb that has to go on this episode. <laughs> but I think you're totally right. Again, here, this is an area, this is a place where the writers wanted to play this scene for laughs instead of going with the, the seriousness uh, of, of what they've actually written, the seriousness of the story that they're telling here. I absolutely would have liked this more if she really meant to shoot him and knew what she was up to and then maybe felt bad about it because there is something about screwing yourself up to shoot at somebody to demonstrate that you're serious and take the thing that you need to save your life, save the lives of people you're responsible for, and also uh, save your entire civilization by overthrowing a military junta. There's a contrast or there's a, there's, that's one stage, right? Screwing yourself up to do that. It's another thing to actually see yourself shoot somebody, right? And so I could buy that reaction. I could buy that they end up laughing about butterflies on the you know floor together and making out, but I wanted her to take it's serious. I wanted the writers to take this character seriously, which is, I think, is the thing you've really shown me about my own feelings about this episode that I'm really appreciating. I'm cautious of it, too. This is something I've had to grapple with. I think so often um, we go to blame um, uh, the actress for like a female character not being well-developed enough, um, and that this is something that often runs deeper uh, but that like the woman in the role typically takes the brunt of the criticism for rather than um the way that that person's character was not um served well by the the other off-screen um elements um of of the production so that that's why that was particularly important for me to say and it's just something that i'm trying to temper and to notice in my own life when i go to criticize um, an actress in a performance to think about what else might be going on um, and how that that one person's performance doesn't necessarily uh, have to be the thing i criticize or the only thing i criticize at least I don't know. I will say in, in a fun, lighthearted way, uh, for, for those listeners who are watching Picard, uh, I I thought there was a little fun thing in here where the name of the butterflies is called like Flitterwing Butterflies or something like that. Okay. <laughs> um, something really literal and, and stupid. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, yeah, butterflies, their wings flitter. But on, a, on the most recent episode of Picard, we see a new animal, which is a rabbit with a unicorn horn. And it's called a bunny corn. Um, and <laughs> at the time, I was like, this is so dumb. They were so lazy about naming this character. But now I'm like, oh, no, this is a fun Trek thing. <laughs> we just name things dumb. Oh, man. I would like to hear alternatives, though. Like, what would you call a bunny corn if not a bunny corn? Well, it's hard to, like, go back from that because now it's a bunny <laughs> right. corn. But I will, I'll think about it and I'll let you know. Yeah. Well, in the meantime, listeners could come to the forum and, uh, and let us know. I mean, there might be some great ideas out there. Well, we, we need to have a, a quick scene in security here where uh, Cisco explains that Cardassia and Bajor have agreed to exchange the dissidents for some Bajoran prisoners. And even though 
Francisco doesn't like it, it is not his call or really the, the Federation's call. And I still want to wait actually for one more scene before we really talk about this. So I think let's just uh, let's just move the plot along here. So we get another scene in Garrick's shop when Garrick is visited by a Cardassian military assassin spy person he used to know named Gol Tehran. Uh, Tehran wants Garrick to kill the dissidents, I guess because Cardassia wants to hold on to their Bajoran prisoners and wants to make sure that they can claim not to have been involved in this shooting if Garrick is caught, though that's not really spelled out here. But what does matter here is that Garrick's motivation for agreeing to do this is that he'll get to go home to Cardassia, that he'll finally be recalled from exile. This, I mean, this makes sense. I think this is, this is very on the nose for Garrick. This is what would cause him tension, um, that he would want to be able to return home. Though, again, it's all played and written with such nuance that even I am questioning, does Garrick want to go home? One of the the many mysteries of Garrick is uh, to what extent is his exile self-imposed? And I was just reminded of that in, in this little scene here. Well, and we're going to have to think about this again when we see the choice that Garrick really makes here at the end. Though, again, I'm also going to ask, when did he make that choice and why Why did he make that? But we do have one more scene in security here where Odo is reading a Mickey Spillane novel, which I have to say is disappointing because Raymond Chandler is really where it's at. Uh but we'll get more on this later. Right now, Quark is begging Odo to let Natima go, and Odo just shrugs him off. This scene is great as well, right? These two are always great together. Quark tries several different rhetorical appeals to Odo, and eventually he even tells Odo that Odo cannot possibly understand Quark's love because Odo has all the emotions of a stone. Uh, That maybe is not the best way to try to persuade somebody to do something, but in the end, Odo does agree, but only in the name of justice, because he knows that these students will be executed and he can't be a party to that. And and this now, this is really where I want to pause and talk about international relations and the ethics of all of this. I mean, for one, this is an interesting step in Cisco's journey, right? He is later going to nuke a planet to root out the Maquis and conduct political assassinations to bring the Romulans into the Dominion War. And in some sense, right, this version that we get here, this version of Cisco we get in this episode, seems kind of weak-willed compared to that later version, right? He doesn't stand up for his beliefs here. He doesn't stand up for Federation principles. But in this episode, and very quietly off camera, right, because this is not actually what the episode is about, but in this episode, Cisco has just decided not to do this, right? Not to stand up for the Federation's humanitarian values and, and to do that for the sake of political expediency, which is also actually kind of what later Cisco does. He just does it with more will, right? I mean, Picard would never let this happen, right? And neither would Kirk, for that matter. Yeah, and but I think Cisco is not served well by this episode either, or... Maybe the better thing to say is there's so much really complicated stuff going on that we can't focus on all of it. So some things just kind of get dropped off in the plot. And in our first scene with Cisco, where where Garrick comes to to his office and says, "Hey, you got to hand these people over," Cisco does have his principles, uh, the the Picardness, the Kirkness, um, and is like no, uh, that's really messed up. I'm not going to do that. I would never do that. And then all of a sudden, the next time we see him, he's just done it. And that never really gets explained. We don't get to see the tension that Cisco grapples with uh, off camera. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it, right? That that's just something that we don't get here. I mean, if anything, you know, my complaints about this story as it exists on screen is really just uh, about wanting more, about thinking that they could have done more and also maybe a little bit better with this, but that there's a movie's worth of ideas here. We could have actually done Casablanca full on here on Deep Space Nine. And, I, you know, this is a movie I would have gone to see. It's a shame, of course, Deep Space Nine never made it to the, the big screen, but I would have gone to see this or something similar to it as a as a movie here because the Cisco stuff is definitely a story that I, I would have wanted to see embedded in this bigger episode. And are you arguing that he he's acting too much like his future self but isn't being consistent with his season two character? Well, I think that that's probably true, but we've not you know watched season two in order here, so that might not be the case. Uh, it just struck me that as I was watching it, I guess my initial impulse was, wow, Cisco is really just 
bending over here. He's not standing up for principles. And later we're going to see him be so much more of a, of a stronger character where he's more principled and makes important, really tough decisions about those principles. But then I circled back around to, but yeah, those, those decisions are all about violating what the Federation is all about. So maybe what we're really seeing here is his journey towards that character. That It actually starts with him just shrugging his shoulders at something that is violating those principles. And then by season, well, really by season five, I guess, but then certainly in season six, he's actively flaunting the Federation's own principles in order to to uh, to do geopolitically savvy things. Yeah. And also one other maybe way to, to read this is to look at this as as Cisco always taking the sides of Bajorans or protecting Bajoran interest, right? And he gets really enmeshed uh, with Bajoran culture and politics. <laughs> That's putting it lightly. <laughs> um, but that that he isn't as much of a neutral third party even this early on as maybe he was meant to be, which happens almost in the pilot, basically. The second that Cisco makes the switch from, I don't want to be here at all, to, oh God, I have to stay here. <laughs> Right. He is the emissary after all. So there may be a part of him that is thinking, well, even if a handful of Cardassians have to get executed in order to get some Bajorans back, then that's okay. I, I'm on board with Bajoran interests here. It's a shame we don't get to see any of those conversations, that it all happens off camera. Right. And that we also don't get to see anything about the Bajoran government, right? Kira is not in this episode. We don't see any phone calls with Bajorans uh, or Bajorans stepping onto the station and having a conversation with someone about what's going on. We are only getting Cardassian perspectives to what is happening. And to be fair, there is something to trying to tell the story of Quark and Natima and also Garrick, who we're going to return to in just a moment, uh, as the focus of this episode and to let the geopolitics really just fade into the background. And that is something that so many of these film noir stories do. The Third Man, Casablanca, those are sort of the two that we're invoking here. But those stories have the luxury of doing that for an audience who already knows what the context is and can fill in the blanks where there are some. Here, I think that because this is a fictional world, a totally fictional premise, that we could have used some of that. So I, I don't know, maybe that's where some of my, my complaining is, uh, is, is coming in here. But uh, uh, are you ready for our final scene now? I am. Well, Quark, Natima, and the dissidents rush for their ship with the cloaking device, but Garrick is there waiting for them, and he wants to go home, and he is willing to shoot them all for it. But he doesn't, because Golteron shows up to check on things. I guess, I don't know, he doesn't think Garrick was really going to do this, but then I'm not sure why he actually ever recruited him in the first place, or at least didn't wait to see if Garrick was going to do it before making it himself known. It was a test. Yeah. It was a test. Don't question the test. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. He's clearly just not very good at his job. And in any case, right, Garrick shoots him and he lets the dissidents go. And now it's time for Natima to say goodbye to the dissidents, of course, right? She's going to stay with Quark in exchange for this cloaking device. But she doesn't. She's going to go with them and she has to say goodbye to Quark, even though she really does love him, she says. And of course, right here, Quark makes the right choice. He gives them the cloaking device and we get some more making out, uh, you know, that's that's a thing that's in this episode. Uh, and then we get Quark and Garrick walking away while Garrick explains that the reason he let them go is because he loves Cardassia, which presumably means that he also doesn't want Cardassia to be governed by a military junta. Uh, but I have to be honest here and say, I'm, I'm not sure I believe that Garrick wasn't going to shoot them. And it feels to me like he just really hated Gold Tehran and then came up with a way to narrativize that. Um, that's definitely possible. You know, I, as I was watching the scene, I found myself particularly annoyed with the kiss. Um, that very like barely touch each other's lips, but then wiggle your head around a lot kind of TV <laughs> kiss. Uh, but now that I'm thinking about how Casablanca is in the background of this, maybe, you know, that was an intentional choice um, to make it seem kind of more of that of that era because um, Casablanca was what filmed in the it was actually of the time it was talking about so the early 40s right 
Yeah, that's right. Though I do think that part of what's going on here with the bad making out is the prosthetics. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was, you can't not think about the teeth whenever <laughs> no. there's a Ferengi or a Klingon kiss on screen. Uh, or or maybe that's just me, but I can't not think about the teeth. Um, I, I will say this is, uh, this scene has my favorite line of the entire episode. Glenn, do you, do you think you might be able to guess what it is? Oh no, I have no idea. Uh, it's when Garrick enters and, uh, his line to get the phaser from Quark is, I would hate to ruin such a nice suit. And it is delivered <laughs> so perfectly yeah. so that you know he hates Ferengi wardrobe so much and thinks it's the ugliest suit he's ever seen in his entire life. But it's just delivered so plainly. It's, oh God, I loved it. I loved it so much. Honestly, no one on this show, no one on Deep Space Nine is wearing anything that looks very good, really, at all. So, like, what is Garrick doing with his time? Like, are people actually going? I don't know, but I do, I do think he does really enjoy being a tailor. I think that's something <laughs> that confuses me a little bit about his character, that, like, it's a perfect facade because it's also kind of true. I don't know, man. I just want to talk about Garrick some more. But, th- but that line, that line really, that line really got me. Um, I don't know what Garrick maybe intended to do in this scene but i would like to think that he did intend to let them go um or at least that there was a big part of him that wanted to and you know just needed a little bit of a nudge i think what really ties this scene together or i find to be uh the most fruitful way to 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 look at it is to read it backwards through the lines at the the very end of the episode, uh, which is where, you know, everybody's gone. Natima and her dissidents are gone. Uh, Taran is gone because he just evaporated into thin air. I still don't totally understand which weapons do that and which weapons don't. That's a whole, whole other thing. Um, and Quark and Garrick are left uh, with a small scene together. And Quark says, I just need to know why, why did you let them go? And Garrick responds, well, you know, why did you let them go? Quark says, well, I had to. I, I love her. I love Natima, so I, I had to let her go. Now, again, if if it's that I love her, therefore I have to respect her boundaries and let her do what she wants, then I don't know why that wasn't happening through the rest <laughs> of the episode, but whatever, we're, we're there now. Um, and Garrick says, well, I love Cardassia, and that's why I had to do what I did. And so what this opens up is the possibility that he actually is on the side of Natima and her students and believes that military rule is not the best thing for Cardassia. And he loves Cardassia so much that he wants to allow um, the, this political message to potentially grow um, and, and succeed. That I think is the, the most positive reading you can, you can take from this. Right. I certainly leave the episode thinking that about Garrick, though, again, I will say that Garrick is a survivor above all else. So I think what he wants to always do is keep options open. And maybe he always knows what his preferred choice is going to be, but he's also willing to make the exact opposite choice if that's the thing that lets him survive. So it's interesting to see his behavior in this in this scene. It's not until I think that he realizes that he can kill Gol Turan that he and then there will be just be no one to report back to Cardassia about what has gone on here and Garrick's own involvement in this, that Garrick really can get away with letting these people go. I wonder what would actually have happened if Gol Turan had not shown up. Yeah, and the world may never know what Garrick actually thinks or how many licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop. <laughs> We're more likely to find out that than what Garrick really, <laughs> really thinks. Uh, we need a we need a Garrick miniseries, I think, uh, after the Picard show is over, uh, for sure. Who doesn't Where he want just that? just eats lollipops. I, look, I would watch that, okay? <laughs> I, I would, would too, watch that. That would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we should talk about a uh, a cocktail here. How about you? Uh, yeah, gee, I wonder if it'll have anything to do with a Sumerian sunset. <laughs> well, I think as as listeners to our other shows are aware, I'm I'm not doing a whole lot of boozing in my life uh, right now since I'm uh, I'm going to bed usually before the sun even goes down. Though that may not really mean anything to someone who's serious about boozing, I guess. But uh, uh, fortunately, I actually already have a Sumerian sunset cocktail, and this was something I made for one of the uh, Star Trek themed nights at Glenn's Cafe American in Princeton. This is one that you came down from New York for, and in fact, this was the same one where you had made the uh, the blue syrup for the Romulan ale drink. 
Yes, this is really what started our cocktail collaboration. Um, and so there's a, a lot to be thankful for, including me being reminded of what's in this drink. Right. Well, getting a little meta about this, the way that the cocktail bar that I, I hosted in my uh, my grad student apartment in Princeton, the way that worked is that I had four drinks on offer. And usually there was one drink that I thought was awesome. That was like a really good drink. And then there were two drinks that were fine, that were totally good drinks. And then there was one that I was always disappointed with. And the Sumerian Sunset was the drink from that menu I was really disappointed with. But uh, it is it is doing double duty here. So it's fun to be reminded of it. Uh, so this was uh, a really a pretty booze light drink, actually. And I was trying to do something with the color. I was trying to, uh, you know, we can't actually flick our finger against a glass and make the, uh, the cocktail light up and change color. You can't. I, well, I cannot. So that's why I had to work around this somehow. So I was trying to create something that would look a little bit like a, a sunset. So it was uh, two ounces of grapefruit juice, one ounce of tequila, and then a quarter ounce of creme de cassis, which is you know a very dark, very viscous liquor. And I was trying to make a layering effect where I would uh, drizzle the creme de cassis down into the drink along a, uh, a bar spoon that sort of swirls around and very slowly gets to the bottom of the drink so that there's uh, a layering of colors there. I was able to pull that off for probably only really a handful of them. I mean, it was a busy night. That was a full night. Even with you there uh, bartending with me, that was a very busy night. Uh, and it just never quite looked as beautiful as it had when I had been playing around with it prior to the bar night. And it's just a lot of grapefruit juice, I will say. It just didn't taste that awesome. Yeah, I understand you need a larger quantity. You need more in the glass, right, um, to, to have volume to work with to get that effect. But yeah, that's a lot of grapefruit juice. Yeah, I will say that one of our frequent uh, patrons of the bar, usually the first person there, the last person to leave there every week, was a huge fan of grapefruit juice cocktails. So, you know, trying to tailor the drinks to the uh, the interest of the, the bar's patrons was another thing I was doing there, but then also playing with the colors. But yeah, there it is, the Sumerian Sunset. It's fine. <laughs> the Sumerian Sunset. It's fine. That's the new tourism motto. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I would. Uh, I want that poster. I would need that hanging up in my house. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think now that we are taking my mediocre cocktail and trying to turn it into an advertising slogan, uh, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Valerie Hoagland. And you can find us and all of our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And we would love to talk with you about this episode. We would love to know if you make this drink and also think it's fine. Um, <laughs> or if you design a poster for us or if you rename the bunny corn. Uh, but do not spoil anything up a card for Glenn. He has not seen it yet. Just an FYI before we start any bunny corn debates. Uh, but all of that can happen on our forum at claytemplemedia.com. And if you've got a better idea for a Sumerian Sunset cocktail, uh, I would love to hear that because there's definitely room for improvement there. Uh, in addition to the forum, you can also always talk to us on our brand new Clay Temple Media subreddit. I mean, it really is brand new. I'm the only person in there. But if you are someone who is on Reddit and prefers using that to talk to us, to other listeners, uh, we're there for you. That is up now. Next time, we're going to be starting off a batch of episodes from a new vote on Patreon and the first episode there. What won, what came in first place was the original series episode Requiem for Methuselah. Oh, that's going to be awesome. I love when we cover TOS episodes. It's always just such a great time. Although people, vote for Enterprise. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited for Requiem for Methuselah as well. And until then, stay spacey.